0: Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. If you are elementary age kid, you are welcome to head downstairs for the kids' class. So last week, we finished up the 13th chapter of Hebrews. We spent the whole summer in the 13th chapter of Hebrews. So if you missed the summer, you only missed one chapter, but there was a lot in that chapter. Um, and, next week, we're going to start going through some of Judges. So, this is a standalone this morning from Psalm 16. Hopefully, you're finding in your Bible Psalm 16. If you haven't already, it'll help uh, for you to follow along. I think one of, one of the things that uh, Psalm 16 is about is, is about satisfaction. Satisfaction. I think most of us go around life feeling that we have a lot of desires and that those desires are unmet. That we have desires for more sleep, we have desires for food, desires for friends, desires for romance maybe, or or sex, or nicer material goods, or more money in the bank, or more success, more meaning, etc. And because we have all these desires and they feel unmet, we are unsatisfied, perhaps even thinking we're deprived. Advertisers know this. Advertisers both appeal to and create desire. I'm going to play a little game with you. I'm going to give you a slogan. I'm going to have you guess where this slogan comes from. So here's the slogan, advertising slogan. I'm loving it. Yes. It appeals to your desire for enjoyment, right? I want to do stuff I love, right? How about this one? Just do it. Yeah, of course you know that one. Uh, Appeals to my desire to do what I want, when I want to do it. How about this one? Because you're worth it. A little harder. What's that? L'Oreal. That's right. My desire to be valuable or at least to be valuable in the eyes of others as they look on me and they value. How about this one? A diamond is forever. De Beers, thank you. Um, my desire, appealing to my desire for something permanent, right? Unchanging, immutable, if you want to use the theological word. How about this one? It gives you wings. Yeah, you, you guys you know that. Not Kmart, uh, Red Bull. My desire to overcome my physical limitations, like my need for sleeping and eating, And the final one, obey your thirst. Sprite, my desire to satiate all my desires. American culture, at least advertising in the midst of American culture, is communicating to us that life is about meeting my desires, being fulfilled. And so Christians can sometimes in a reactionary sort of way, swing the other way and think that desire is bad. And we quote verses like these. Luke 9.23, and he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Or 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Or Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. I like to say that, covetousness, which is idolatry, right? Now, obviously, if Scripture says that, there is a place for the control or the killing off of desire, at least earthly desire, sinful desire. But that doesn't mean that all desire is bad, right? And so if... If we're thinking, I've just got to get rid of all desire, we're more Stoics than we are Christians. We're thinking, I'm I'm going to rationally overcome my irrational desires. That's not Christian. Uh, Philosopher Jordan Peterson, who's kind of blown up on YouTube and the Internet, I think is kind of popularizing Stoicism. He says this, happiness is a pointless goal. Don't compare yourself with other people. Compare yourself with who you were yesterday. No one gets away with anything, ever. So take responsibility for your own life. You conjure your own world, not only metaphorically, but also literally and neurologically. These lessons are what the great stories and myths have been telling us since civilization began. Now, is there some truth to that? Yes. Yes, but... This managing of desires, this rational overcoming of desire is is not Christian. right? That desires are actually God-given. Desire is good. And like everything else in the world, because of sin and its effects, desire becomes twisted. And then something good becomes destructive. Destructive in our own life. Destructive in the lives of those around us, even destructive to the planet. So desire is not bad unless it's been twisted by sin. And what we find in Psalm 16 is how desire can be redeemed and how we can truly be satisfied. Because again, we're all walking around unsatisfied and because of it, unmet desires and there is indeed a satisfaction that is available right and this is what psalm 16 is all about so here some secrets to satisfaction right you ready for this there's four uh, four different points here place person people and portion they all start with p place person people and portion so place and person show up in the very first verse of psalm 16 Says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So King David's writing this, and he's saying, I am taking refuge. There must be some kind of danger. There's some sort of storm that's brewing. And he's running from whatever that storm is and seeking to take refuge out of that storm. And the place that he's taking refuge in is actually a person. It's not a place. The place is a person. They're they're the same thing, right? He says, I'm taking refuge in God. And this this is important for us to hear because oftentimes we are seeking satisfaction through the changing of our place, right? We, We think, I'll never have satisfaction if I'm in the same job. I've got to get a different job. I've got to go to another place in my life and then I will get satisfaction. Or we say to ourselves, I can't stay satisfied if I'm single, or married people are saying, I can't stay satisfied if I stay married to this particular person, and I've got to go to a different location in my marital status if I'm going to experience satisfaction, or you're saying to yourself, I can't be satisfied if I'm in the same house, or I own the same car, or I'm in the same town, I've got to relocate, and if I relocate, then I will get satisfaction, We play this if-only game, right? Going through life, unmet needs, dissatisfied, saying to herself over and over and over, if-only, and then fill in the blank. But how has this worked for you so far? The older you get, the more you realize you've played the if-only game for years, decades. And you never seem to reach the place of satisfaction. Case in point, vacations. Think about vacations, right? You work hard to go on vacation. And a vacation is a different place. You're staying in a different house. You don't have to go to work. But oftentimes, what you find at vacation is not what you thought, right? Not satisfaction. It may be sickness or strife or other forms of difficulty. The changing of your circumstances can certainly influence your level of satisfaction. I will give you that. But it is not the ultimate problem. The place where we find satisfaction is not in a new place. It's in the person of God. And that satisfaction can be found no matter the place you find yourself be a good place, bad place, somewhere in between place. Now, again, this is not easy. When we do experience sickness in our body, strife in our relationships, struggles in our home or at work or in school, but again, what Psalm 16 is saying is there is a refuge, and that refuge is not a place. That refuge is the person of God. Now, as you hear that, you may be thinking, oh, so God, if we take refuge in Him, He will become my sugar daddy, and he will give me all of those earthly desires that I have. Is that what you're saying? No, that is not what I'm saying. King David clears that up. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, this is pretty insightful stuff here. He says, I say to the Lord. Now, what he is saying in that is that God is Lord whether he believes it or not. Whether if he, he ascribes that attribute to God or not. He says, I say to the Lord. right." But what does he say to the Lord? Lord, you are my Lord. So he's aligned himself with reality. That in reality, God is Lord. He is the ultimate authority. And David is aligning himself under that authority. And that authority is good authority. When authority is functioning well, you've heard me say this many times, but when authority is functioning as it should, benefits flow down from the good authority to those under their care. And so as he says, you're my Lord, he then says, I have no good apart from you, who is my Lord. Everything good, everything good comes from God. Uh, This is What Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Think about this, right? He says, pray, our Father, so there's our our Daddy, in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying to our Father in heaven, you are king, you are holy, and I want your rule and your reign to come down, starting with me. Aligning myself with what is real, but then the very next part of the Lord's Prayer: "Give us this day our daily bread." As we ascribe to God His His true person of being holy and King, we 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 start asking for simple things: daily bread, forgive us of our debts, and lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. This He's good. Yes, He's holy. Yes, He is king. He is sovereign over all things. But He is good. And so when we take refuge in God, we can know that He is going to give us good things. And everything, again, that we have is th- that is good is from God. Our fresh water, our friends, our meaningful work, our healthy body, all of it, it's a gift from God. It's not what we're entitled to, which is not our default. Our default is entitlement, especially in the context we live in. We think we are entitled to good things. No, all good things are gifts; they come from God. One of the ways that God has tried to teach this to me, to some degree, is through the little injuries that I've had over the years. And I had some back injuries, and I couldn't run. And then I was able to rehab, and I was able to run again and exercise. And then now I've got a little knee issue, and I can't run. and And my first reaction usually is, I'm frustrated. How could I have a bad back or a hurt knee, right? Because I was entitled when I was in good health. But through these different bouts with different injuries, injuries now, after I get done with a run, when I can run, I thank God, thank you that I ran today, right? that, that good health, that strength, that's, that's from God. Every good thing is from God. So we take refuge in the person of God. And we do that in the midst of the people of God. Look at this next part, verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And that might be confusing. You think, well, I thought you were delighting in God, and now you're delighting in the saints in the land. And what he's meaning is the people of God. Like How, how is it that you delight in God, and then you delight in the people of God? Well, because those things are inseparable. They're not the same thing, but they are inseparable. If you're gonna fully delight in God and have joy in God and and experience what it means to, to be in the refuge of God, you can do that in the midst of his people. The people of God. Uh, we experience absolutely an individual relationship with God, no doubt. But we don't experience that fully if we're not doing that relationship alongside other people. I've had some, some good conversations with Tommy Moore, who was just up here praying a few minutes ago, who just came on our staff team, and we've been talking about small group ministry. And what, what does that look like? And how do we help that grow here? And how do we mature that? And, and, and part of why we're excited about that is because we know that people are going to have a deeper experience of satisfaction in Jesus in the midst of small groups. Because we know when when they're experiencing Jesus alongside other believers in Christ, that that satisfaction is, is, is only going to deepen. Because you can't do it just by yourself. I mean, you can't at some level, but you can't fully experience the satisfaction and the joy that God has for us unless you're doing that in community. We experienced some of this on our staff retreat this past week. We spent a few days out in Northfield as a staff and just enjoying... The presence of God, but with each other, looking at Scripture together, praying together, worshiping together. And it was sweet, and and it was experienced because we were in community with each other as a family. Now, verse 4 is the only verse that really gives the alternative. So if you don't take refuge in God, you take refuge somewhere else. Here's what you're in for. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. So instead of satisfaction, you get sorrow. He describes running after another God. I think this is what happens when we run after something that's not God, try to take refuge in something that's not God. You never quite get satisfied. We've all done this. We all do this. And it's just this never-ending, reaching and grabbing for that satisfaction, and, and it never fulfills only God is the one who can deeply fulfill what we long for, those needs that we feel are unmet. He says, he describes some kind of a pagan worship practice, right? Some drink, drink offering of blood. And we're not going around having, you know, pagan offerings most likely, but still we seek satisfaction in something else. And when we do that, we are worshiping idols. It's another way to understand what our idols are. What, what, what are we looking for to satisfy our deepest needs? What are we frustrated about that's not meeting that need reveals the idols of our hearts? Now, you may be thinking, well, seems like Christians are the ones that are having the sorrows and the non-Christians are the ones that are having the satisfaction. And so one, one of the things I think it's helpful to understand is is that true satisfaction does require the sorrow of turning away from lesser satisfactions. That's part of what those verses I read earlier about dying to self and taking up your cross. You're dying to lesser satisfactions and turning toward the deep, deep satisfaction that you were built for. And so, yes, there, there are sorrows that Christians experience because they're Christians, right? They're having to turn away from things. They're having to take stands for things. This is not an easy life. But the result is not just saying no and just dying to things, but it's turning away from those things and turning toward the deepest satisfaction that we could ever know. It's part of the motivator for turning away from those things. If the only motivator is those things are wrong, those things are bad, don't do it, that's not enough of a motivator. It's part of the motivator, but it's not enough. You've got to get a glimpse of what's on the other side of repentance, and the deep satisfaction of knowing the one true God. Now, what you get when you turn away from those things and turn toward the one true God is your portion, your portion Verse 5 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now this portion, think about when, when do we use the portion, word portion? We usually talk about portion sizes. Americans are often being criticized for their portion sizes, and they should be criticized for their portion sizes. But it's what you're being apportioned, Your your part. Like when we say, what's in it for me? That's a question about portion. What's my portion? What do I get? Right. So if I turn away from these lesser satisfactions and I turn toward this, the, what God has for me, what do I get? What's in it for me? And what's in it for me is I get God. I get God. And David says, the Lord is my chosen portion. He knows that as he's turning away from those lesser satisfactions and turns toward what God has for him he knows he he's choosing God because he knows enough about God to know that that is indeed the portion that he wants when he asks the question what's in it for me he he really wants the answer to be God that's what's in it for me he, he's using language that was used to describe what the levite the tribe of levi got in the apportioning of land in the promised land when uh, Joshua brings them in, and he apportions all the tribes' land, except for the Levites. They don't get land. Here's what they get: Numbers eighteen twenty. The Lord said to Aaron, "You shall have no inheritance in their land." You can kind of just see the Levite going, "What? What? Excuse me. the The other eleven tribes got land, and we don't. Like, excuse me, right?" But then he goes on. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. He's saying, Levite priests, you don't get an inheritance of land. But what you get is God. That is your portion. That is what's being apportioned to you. So he uses this word portion. He He says, my cup. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, take this cup away from me. It's a way of saying this, this destiny away from me. right? This future away from me. Take it away from me. And he's saying, no, my cup is the Lord. He's my portion. He's my cup. He, he's completely yielding his destiny, his future to God. And he's saying he's happy about that. He says, my lot Now, there's lots of casting lots in the ancient world, and and the understanding was that God was in control of the casting of lots. And so whatever your lot was, that was given to you by God. And so he's saying, you're my portion, you're my cup, you're my lot, and that I'm choosing this. I want to be in God, taking refuge in him. He illustrates this idea of portion in verse 6 again. He says, the line's have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So again, he goes back to that distribution of land. So just think about being uh, in, in one of the tribes of Israel, and Joshua's handing out, he's apportioning land to all the all the tribes, and then you, you have a tribe meeting, and then they say, okay, here's how the land's going to be apportioned to all the clans inside the tribe, and then you have a clan meeting, and you say, here's how all the lines. all the the property boundaries for all the families that are in the clans, that are in the tribes, that are in the nation of Israel. And when you're standing there and and you're seeing what's apportioned to you and they they say, here's where your property line goes this way, here's where your property line goes this way, and you see it and you go, I love it. I love where these lines have fallen. Look look at the fertile land, look at the water, look at the mountains. I I couldn't have dreamed anything more than this. And he uses that image to say, this is the way I feel about God. That I get God. Th- that is the lines falling in pleasant places. Powerful illustration. And he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. Well, what's this inheritance? It's God. It's God. He knows he has a future grace in God, in in, in the life to come, but it's also what you pass on to your kids. That's the inheritance, right? That's what inheritance is. You you pass it on to your kids. And yesterday, we we put Kayla on an airplane, and she's headed to Scotland and going to serve there and mission work for the next uh, four months. This is our youngest, our, our daughter. And it was hard, but it's, it was awesome because she has taken this inheritance of faith in Jesus, as have our older two. And the kind of life that we've lived, it's not really producing all that much monetary inheritance for them. I sometimes wish it, it could maybe you know, produce more, but it's not. But what they are getting is a beautiful inheritance because they're getting the gospel. And this is what he's saying. This, this is my portion. This is my cup. This is my lot. And I have an inheritance of knowing God to pass on to the next generation. Now, what, what exactly, again, what's in it for me, right? I know I get God, and that sounds kind of nebulous. I get God. What do I get? What does that mean? Verses 7 through 11 really explain. A lot of what that means. Not everything, but a lot. So I'm going to read those verses, and then we'll pull out a few threads. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let my let uh, your holy one see corruption you make known to me the path of life in your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore so he begins to describe what is it like to have god as your portion and here's here's at least four things god as your portion means you get guidance you get guidance you're not alone in this world to just figure things out. He says, he gives me counsel. He instructs me. The Lord is before me. He makes known to me the path, right? This is all guidance kinds of, of verbiage. Have you ever been lost and you, you don't know how to get to the next place and you're in desperation and somebody helps you? This, this happens less and less now that we have phones with GPS and we just figure it out. But there was a day when you could get lost, if you had no map, you had no hope. And when we came in 99 in June, we were here to look for a house. We, we hadn't moved here yet. We, just, we needed a house. We fly into Boston. We get a rent car, and we've got our MapQuest directions. Remember that? Anybody? It's a, it's a, so it's printed, and, we're, and so for whatever reason, MapQuest told us that the way to get to Amherst was to get on Route 9 in Worcester and ride Route 9 into Amherst. Some of you shake your head because you've done this too. Except it's really hard to get on Route 9 in Worcester and find it. At least it, it was for me. And so here, here we are. It's nighttime. We've, you know, we've been on an airplane all day. The, the kids are tired. Uh, we, we pull into this gas station that's got one, just a little plexiglass, a little hut in the middle. And I'm trying to ask someone for directions through the plexiglass and they can't understand me, I can't understand them, and, and it's, it's just a really low moment, and there's this guy standing there next to me and just kind of watching and probably laughing, and he comes over to me, and he says, hey, uh, I'm an off-duty Worcester police officer. If you just follow me, I'll take you to Route 9, and I'll put you on the right road, and it was just like, oh, weight lifted. Then I thought, he's going to kill us, right? <laughs> <coughs> he didn't kill us, and we went through these winding roads and through an industrial complex, and then there we were on Route 9, and and obviously we we did make it, and we did find a house, Um, but one of the the things that that we get to experience with the Lord as our portion is we get guidance. Now, we have to ask Him for it, and we have to seek Him for it, right? We're oftentimes bad at that, and we're just trying to figure it out on our own, but but what, what Psalm 16 is saying here is no, you, you don't have to just figure it out. God will give you guidance. He also gives you stability. There's a lot of stability language. I shall not be shaken. My flesh dwells secure. God is at my right hand. Right? That's all stability language. And again, it doesn't mean his life is, is perfect, right? He's at the very beginning saying, I'm taking refuge, right? There's storms that are brewing in his life, and he's seeking refuge in God. But he's saying because God is the immutable, unchangeable rock, he has stability. He will not be shaken. Again, as as we sent Kayla off yesterday, you know, just a great reminder that that she had a lot of stability here at home, in our house, and, and a lot of predictability and safety and security. And now she's out there, right? But she's not just out there she's on the immutable rock of god and the same stability that she experienced in our home was really a stability that was built on god and now she gets to live that out in her own life so not only guidance but stability third thing life if god is your portion you you get life he says you will not abandon me to sheol that's the place of the dead the Old Testament believer's understanding is that, that this, is, this is where you go, and some thought maybe you stayed there forever, right? There's different thinking about what exactly is going on in Sheol, and he's letting, them, letting us know, no, 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 I will not be abandoned to the place of the dead. And then says, won't see corruption or decay. So that's verbiage about resurrection, right? Resurrection is being raised to life, never to die again. That's what he's describing. You will not see corruption or decay. It's as opposed to resuscitation where you're raised up and you die again. And then another phrase, make known to me the path of life. So not only is he giving us guidance, but he's, he's giving us life. And from the opening pages of the Bible, this is what God's been doing for his people, giving life, the tree of life. It's not, not just this tree. Like th- th- this, is, this is communicating to us that God is the giver of life, and sin... Results in the taking away of life and resulting in death. And yet God then again wants to bring life. This is His way. This is what He does when, when, when he, we are taking refuge in Him and He is our portion. So not just guidance, stability, life, but also joy. Joy. It says, my heart is glad. Love that, right? Your heart, the, the, the very center of your being the place where everything else is springing out of, your thoughts, your emotions, your will, at that most central place, gladness. That's what we want. That's why we buy Sprite, right? It's because we want to feel glad. And corn syrup doesn't make you feel glad, right? We want something deeper, right? Right? That's why we want to go on vacation. Nothing wrong with vacations. And sometimes there, there's certainly gladness on vacations, but, but vacations are not enough to give us gladness in the depths of our heart. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. He says there's fullness of joy. Not half joy. Fullness of joy in His presence. Again, pointing to the being in the, in the person of God, that this is... Where all that we desire is located is in the person of God. That at at God's right hand, their pleasures forevermore. Usually, when we think of God's right hand or His right arm, we think of Him doing something powerful. He's smiting our enemies or something, which He does. He does that, and that's a good thing. But that's not all He does with His right hand. He's giving pleasure do you think of that do you have room in in your understanding of god that he would he would want to give you pleasure that's what it says right here and and it's a way to say that your deepest desires your, your your deepest longings for satisfaction they will only be met in god and he's willing to give it in fact he wants to in a, a wonderful book that I would encourage you to to read by John Piper it's called Desiring God and in it this is the main idea and he says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and this would be one of the texts that he would use to 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 to, to, to preach that to teach that is that God is most glorified in us not just when we're we're just dying self, although that's part of it, right? But, but that we're, we're, we're turning toward God as our greatest treasure, as the one that we find our greatest joy in. That brings Him much, much glory. Piper argues that our desires are not too strong, they're actually too weak, that, that we're too easily satisfied with vacations and corn syrup. We, we want to turn away from that and and seek to meet our desires in a much deeper way an eternal way in fact and so how, how do you how do you respond to this I think it's simple I, I've been trying to respond to this sermon all, you know all all week and think about this but one is turning away from those lesser satisfactions what are the things in your life that you're chasing after in order to satisfy your soul? And oftentimes the way you discern that is what's frustrating you. You just never can quite get the right job, the, the right place in your marriage, the, the, the right amount of money in the bank, the, the right amount of rest, the right vacation. What, what, what is it? And then confessing that that you've been seeking that as your ultimate satisfaction. But not just stopping there, turning toward God and and, and seeking to meet those those unmet needs in Him, in Him alone. And it's going to take some time, all right? It's sort of like getting off of junk food and turning toward good food. At first, good food just doesn't taste good. You just, you just want to go back to the junk. But the junk makes you feel bad. It makes you feel like not full of life, right? But you turn toward the good and over time, as you, those appetites change, you begin to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so let's, let's turn away from these other means of, of satisfying our souls and turn toward God. And so what happens is as, as we seek God as our ultimate satisfaction, we can then pick up some of those earthly things that are good things and treat them appropriately. Because we're not seeking them as the ultimate. And so now we can enjoy vacations even more because we're not seeking our ultimate satisfaction in that. We can enjoy our our job with all of its positives and negatives in an even greater way because we're not seeking our ultimate satisfaction in our job. We're seeking that in God. And ultimately, that satisfaction is met in the cross. It's met in Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He uses these very basic desires of hunger and thirst that we all, we can resonate with that. I I was at at Firestone yesterday waiting on my tire to get fixed and uh, I had skipped lunch and drank a cup of coffee on an empty stomach and then all of a sudden I was just so hungry, right? I I, I was just like, I'm going to run over to Chipotle and go get a burrito, Right? But I didn't, and I waited, and I got home, and I ate at home. But that, just that, that feeling of, I'm going to die if I don't eat something, right? And he's saying, may our appetites for God be like that, right? with hunger and thirst, and have that met in Jesus. And so it may be that this morning, you've never taken refuge in God before, ever, You never sought him to be your ultimate joy. You have never sought him to be your chosen portion. I want to encourage you this morning to receive him by faith. To receive what he's done for you on the cross. To die for your sins. To die for the sin of seeking satisfaction in something else besides God. And to then satisfy your soul the hunger and thirst that you have. And so as you've been listening, you may be thinking, Oh, that's me. That's what I do. I'm here to tell you this morning, he's here to meet those deepest, deepest needs and to satisfy you both in this life and in the life to come. So receive him by faith this morning. And then others of us, we're followers of Jesus, but we know how this works. We we, we get derailed and and we start to turn toward those lesser satisfactions and seeking our ultimate fulfillment in those things, and they always disappoint. And then those things start to be something that that we can't even enjoy at all, whether it be work or marriage or friendship or church or whatever the thing may be. And so let's confess that to the Lord this morning and let's turn toward Him as the one who most deeply satisfies our soul. Let's pray. God, we thank You that these These needs that we have, these hungers and thirsts that seem so unmet and so unsatiated, God, that that you are here to, to meet those deepest needs, and not as a sugar daddy, but as the one who is the one true God, the Lord over all, but the Lord who's good. And so I do pray, Lord, that we would all taste and see that the Lord is good this morning as we take this bread and take this cup, that we'd be reminded that uh, you are the real food and drink that we need, that our hunger is really hungering for, our thirst is really thirsting for, God. And that you would come and meet us in that hunger and thirst, some for the first time ever, and others, Lord, in a fresh way. And so, Lord, as we receive this and are reminded of what you've done on the cross so that these needs can be met, our ultimate need, Lord, being in relationship with you, God. We give you thanks and praise and ask your blessing over the bread and over the cup and over our time together as we experience you as our portion among the people of God. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.